Just a quick word of warning to your classical podcasts before we get started. We will be discussing Me Too and topics surrounding sexual assault, so if that's not what you want to be listening to, then skip forward a couple of minutes from the beginning. Bonjour! This is Tim and Sam from the Classical Music Pod. We've just been watching France get absolutely stuffed by England in the rugby, and yet we've still found time to bring you the news, reviews and fun bits from around the classical world. Absolutely. We've got pen pals, protests and possibly the best Brazilian composer of all time. On with the pod. It's been bad news this week, there's no hiding it. There's no hiding it, it's around Me Too and there's lots of it, so let's start in New York with the former director, musical director of the Metropolitan Opera, James Levine. Yeah, so he was accused in December 2017 of sexually molesting a male teenager for years and then three other men came out and accused him and this has been an ongoing protracted legal battle ever since. Levine sued the Met for defamation and breach of contract when they fired him and then the Met countersued him and they both stand to lose over $5 million dollars and the costs are now spiring out of control. This week, Levine's lawyers have demanded access to 53,000, over 53,000 emails, and the Met's lawyers say that to dig out all these emails would add over $400,000 to the cost of the case. He's just pushing back that sentence, either innocent or guilty, further and further, isn't he? Exactly. Conductor Charles Dutois has been the source of controversy in France this week on a similar subject. He has been accused by eight women of being violent towards them whilst they work together. And yet, still, he was invited by the Orchestre National de France to conduct some Berlioz with them. He was covering for a sick conductor. The orchestra voted overwhelmingly not to be conducted by him. 60% of them said they didn't want that to happen. And yet, the management of the orchestra went ahead with it anyway, to much controversy. Yeah. John Duran, who's the mayor of West Hollywood, has resigned as chair of the Los Angeles Gamers Chorus after three singers have accused him in the LA Times of inappropriate touching. Further to that, today the countertenor David Daniels has been released on bail. He is accused, along with his husband, of raping a colleague whilst they were in a production of Handel's Xerxes together in Houston, Texas. So the point here is that musicians' unions and orchestra boards, they have a huge amount to catch up on. It does feel like there isn't a mechanism in place yet to deal with this limbo between accusation and sentence. Mm. I think we all agree uh, that people are innocent until they're proven guilty, of course, but if you are a person of means, like James Levine, as we've seen, you are able to stretch out that sentencing for a long, long time and keep demanding emails and more costs and all this kind of stuff. And what are the institutions going to do to protect performers whilst that limbo is underway. What feels disingenuous to me is that institutions like the Orchestra Nationale de France, they appear to be becoming more democratic by asking to hold a vote on who comes and conducts them, and yet they go back on that and they have somebody come in to conduct who they didn't want, and it adds a layer of insult to an already pretty raw injury. Yeah, so they don't protect you in the first place, then you come forward with an accusation, then they ask you to vote, and even then you're going to end up playing for this person who has been appalling to you, potentially. It's not in a good place right now. No. But we do have good news, and here it comes. 
Yes, good news. Jap van Zweden and the New York Philharmonic are marking the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted equal voting rights to women in the United States, by commissioning works by 19 women, including my absolute favourite, Caroline Shaw, who wrote the Partita for Eight Voices, which won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. I haven't heard that. I'll have to check that out. Also, Mirga Graznitke Tyler, who's the principal conductor of the CBSO, has been signed to Deutsche Grammophon, the Manchester United of record companies. Mm. I mean, they really are historically top dogs. And uh, Dalia Stasevska is the new BBC Symphony Orchestra principal guest conductor. So perhaps she could go and conduct some Berlioz next time they need some yeah, in quite Paris. Right. If she did, you might not be hearing it on Radio 3. Oh, no? <laughs> According to recent figures, their listeners down 20% over the last two years. Because everyone's coming to the classical music pod, Tim. It mm. must be that. Sorry, Petrock. Sorry to Petrock. Radio 3. Arise. Sir Simon Keenly sighed. He's been knighted by the Prince of Wales in the latest set of honours for all his services to music, singing, baritone, beautifully all over the world. Interesting fact about Simon Keenly sighed, studied zoology. That's amazing. It's quite a good one, right? If you're having a bad week, think of Bolot Osmanov. I always think of Bolot Osmanov, especially <laughs> as he is the head of the Kyrgyzstan Opera Ballet Theatre. And unfortunately, he rented it out to a hollowed of gamers for a convention who then trashed it. Yeah, he got fired. Poor got guy. Fired. I mean, unemployment is no laughing matter, Tim. No, but, that's not um, funny. That but the name funny. Bolot Osmanov does make me smile. I'm sorry to Bolot. If you're having a bad week in Australia... Also think of Bolot Osmanov. Yeah, think of Bolot, but also think of Opera Australia's new scheme, Opera for One, which is encourages singles to attend and meet each other. It's not a dating service. They've specifically said this on their website. It's not a dating service yet, Tim. Not yet, yeah. But c- yeah, exactly. Could develop that way. We'll keep you posted. Mm. Federer the pianist. Federer the pianist. More traditionally, thought of as a tennis player. In a new promotional video for Uniqlo, he's been spotted playing Bach's Prelude Number no. 1 from the Well-Tempered Clavier. I think they've deliberately publicised that footage, Tim. I don't think that someone spotted him. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Guerrilla footage that of is Federer. Shameless advertising. But he did play the piano as a child, and uh, he talks in the advert about the importance of focusing on things outside tennis, which nice. is a fair point. Classic FM got in touch with harpsichordist Nikolai Anderson dahl and asked him about Federer's slightly unusual fingering that he employs while mm. playing Bach's Prelude Number One, and he uses the two-four fingering system, doesn't he? He does. And Madman. Apparently, this is actually a, a Renaissance and Baroque fingering system, which uh, isn't used so much, but is incredibly accurate for the time period in which it was written. So, congratulations to Roger. For... Would it improve my forehand? No. <laughs> Bum. <laughs> That was the letters aria from Eugene Onegin by Tchaikovsky. We are playing it in honour of our first letter. Isn't that exciting? It is. It's from Mikey in Mallorca, and he says, Dear bad boys of the Baroque, I'm really enjoying the pod, and I just wanted to write and ask if you've got any ambitions to do a fully synthesised ring cycle. Tim? Well, thank you, Mikey from Mallorca. I really appreciate that. And I genuinely would love to do the entire ring cycle synthesised. Unfortunately, it would just take a really, really long time, but if somebody was going to pay me, then 100%. 
<laughs> After that deluge of one letter from Europe, I thought we could look at one of the great correspondences in music history today, William Byrd and Philip de Monte's exchange in 1584, when they both wrote pieces using the texts from Psalm 136 and 137. These are poems that tell the story of the people of Israel being enslaved by the Babylonians, and they use it as an allegory for the Catholics being oppressed in Elizabethan England. Analysis. So the two of them met 30 years before they wrote the pieces when Philip de Monte travelled to London as part of Philip II of Spain's entourage. Was he Spanish himself then? No, so he's Flemish. Right. Flemish Phil, Spanish Phil. Spanish Phil, the king, is getting married to Queen Mary. Uh, so he comes across and he meets Bird when Bird's only 11 years old. He's singing in the Chapel Royal's choir and they get on like a house on fire, or must do. And Spanish Phil marries Queen Mary, Flemish Phil goes back, eventually he becomes the director of music for the chapel of the Holy Roman Empire, and eventually William Byrd rises to prominence. In 1584, so skip forward 30 years, Europe is still Catholic, but Elizabethan England is really not very Catholic, it's very anti-Catholic, like, you know, create a secret compartment in your house so that you can hide your priest Catholic, yeah. you know, burn people at burn the stake, yeah. kind of Catholic. Um, so Flemish Phil looks at Byrd and thinks he must be having a tough time, and sends him a motet in solidarity. Here it is being sung by the Sixteen. That's a setting of the text Superflumina Babylonis by Flemish Phil de Monte. It translates as, By the streams of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered you, Zion. Phil is saying to Bird how alien Britain must feel around him. And he creates this sense of disorientation musically in the first phrase by having an open fifth on E. And we don't know if that's major or minor. Then he adds a major third in the soprano part. It feels like we're positive and we're rising. But then we get this totally bewildering D minor tonality. Before ending up on a cadence in C major. We've gone on this crazy musical journey and it's only lasted six bars. We don't feel like we know which way is up. We've been abducted to a foreign musical land. Here's what it sounds like with the choir. Demonte concludes with the words, On the willows in our midst we hung up our harps. Giving a little moment of word painting on hung, suspendimus, he dots the rhythm and the note hangs over to the next beat. (laughs) 
Perhaps we could see this as him questioning why Bird hasn't hung up his own harp, why he's still employing his musical services, despite the religious environment around him being a regime that he doesn't agree with. And how does Bird respond? He takes the next bit of psalm text and uses Jerusalem as a metaphor for his own Catholic faith. So the words are, If I should forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand fall idle, let my tongue stick in my throat, if I do not remember you, if I do not keep Jerusalem as the greatest of my joys. It's a great resolution of faith, and he composes this monster work for double choir, and it's a polyphonic treat to demonstrate that he is still using his talents to celebrate his faith. Here it is once again by the 16. Two things to bring out here, really. First, how Bird is inspired by and incorporates some of de Monte's devices and musical construction, like the illustration of musical foreignness, and also how Bird uses his reply to demonstrate that he's still basically the best composer in Europe. So Bird writes in F major, but leans heavily on the flat seventh to create moments of musical dislocation, that feeling out of place. He does it on the word aliena, alien, foreign. That references the opening of the Demonte, and similarly, the dotted rhythms of Suspendimus have been built into Bird's work too. Here are some of the motifs that Bird uses to show Philip how he can still hang his harp. Bird reinforces the resolution of his faith and his status as a skilled composer with the density and closeness of his polyphony. He opens with a double invertible cannon. A cannon is not the thing that goes boom, nor a holy father. It's a melody that works when played over itself like Frere Jacques. Here we have three voices singing Cuomodo, two at the same pitch and then one a fifth lower. He's Birdman, and because he's showing off, he also has it flipped upside down at the same time, and it all still fits together. That's an invertible cannon. What's really clever is he manages to get all the voices in following that same initial shape. So he manages the vertical tonality to create the alien chords like De Monte did. But he's also keeping the horizontal aspect, the melodic individual lines going, and they're really closely unified. (laughs) 
throughout the whole piece, Bird's polyphony is weaved as closely as this, really showing his justification that he still deserves to sing the Lord's song despite being in difficult circumstances. It's a correspondence that, for me, shows how fruitful musical friendship can be and that the sharing of ideas across the channel maybe isn't something worth jettisoning. Tim, you collected that audio for us whilst roving around in Westminster this week, didn't you? I did. I met Simon Hewitt-Jones and Simon Valfish in St John's Smith Square and we marched together down to Westminster where they were protesting Brexit. When I first met Simon Volfish, it was a few years ago, he was playing the first violin part to Siegfriediddle, but on his cello, which does get you quite a lot of marks for flair. That's ama- it's it's pretty he, cool. He's an incredible musician. So for those who don't know Simon Volfish, he is a violinist and a cellist, sorry, and a baritone, although he was playing the violin and singing on Wednesday whilst we A protesting. multi-talented guy. Multi-talented. And he's from a, a famous musical family. His mm. mother was a famous violinist in Australia. Cellist, yeah. And Simon Hewitt-Jones, who is with him, is also a professional violinist. He's done a lot of work at the Royal College of Music and he runs the London Violin School. They sound like lovely chaps. What were they protesting? Primarily freedom of movement. Oh. A musician living in the UK relies on freedom of movement to travel around the the EU where Mm. most of the musicians work, especially Simon's, as a baritone is. He said to me that 60% of his work is in in Holland, Germany and France. Wow. This is what originally spurred on Simon Wolfish to go and protest outside of Westminster over two years ago. Wow. And this is his 22nd protest now. What I found inspiring was that music was the hook that they used. It was clearly part of a wider stance on Brexit and a means with which to protest. Would you say that the main reason you're out here protesting is because of the music thing or or is it a wider...? No, I think it's a a good sort of hook um, because it's our sector and it's something that we can really... um, we can really sort of fight for but uh, obviously the whole concept of um, you know a big international cooperation uh, between nations that um, till relatively recently in history have been at war um, on continuously um, without interruption in certain places um, it's uh, it's really important to, to keep the concept of this uh, this very, very complicated but uh, lasting peace process that is the European Union going. And so we want to show our support for that by uh, singing Ode to Joy outside Parliament every month for the last two years. This is our 22nd, I think. What I found unexpected was that as well as singing Beethoven's Ode to Joy, they sang the British National Anthem, Hmm. which to me feels like a nationalist thing to do. So I asked Simon what he expected to convey by singing that. You've been singing the national anthem as well. Is, is the... That's a recent thing. Um, you know, because actually when there's been uh, people protesting for leave, um, we found that it's actually quite nice to get everyone singing together for once. You know, our, our ethos is to bring some positivity and some good, good atmosphere into this air, which is very poisoned and sour and extremely divisive, as you can see and hear on the street. Um, so yeah, so doing God Save the Queen, and of course you know it's not that we're not unpatriotic, as it were. You know we want our, we want Britain to be a strong 
leading member of the EU, and, and especially in the arts. You know, the arts brings in, in terms of export revenue alone, £2.5 billion pounds in, in 2017, I think. The fishing industry brought in £980 million, pounds, so we're over double just on our EU export tax revenue alone. So it's not an insignificant uh, sector. That's the arts as a whole, you know, including restaurants and hotels and all the rest of it that comes as a result of tourism and stuff like that so you know it's extremely important the atmosphere around westminster has been quite aggressive over the last few months we were lucky enough that on wednesday there wasn't much animosity between leavers and remainers there was one character a brexit supporter who did shout traitor at simon and his fellow musical protesters so i asked him what he thought about that and what he would say you can't argue with fact and figures, people who've got an emotional um, ideology and, and if they believe something, there's very little you could do. You know, try to talk to someone who's, who's religious and trying to convince you to, uh, to follow their religion. Um, try to convince them that there isn't a God. You know, we're, we're fighting. There's no point in even engaging with that, except that with music, we do have an opportunity to, to um, engage on a much deeper level with people, even if they don't realise they're, they're doing that. Tim, did it feel like it was making much of a difference? What really struck me, actually, was that it felt like the music was engendering a very tangible, positive atmosphere around College Green. And I spoke to Simon Hewitt-Jones a little bit after speaking to Simon Volfish, and he explained really eloquently the push that they had on positivity and encouraging conversation between protesters, whether they were remain or leave. Well, yeah, I, I've been coming here to play Ota Joy in, in Westminster with Simon Valfish pretty much from the second or I think it was about the second week he started doing it. And for us it's, it's very, very important to make a statement when we feel that something is, is wrong and we want to draw people's attention to it. Music is a wonderful way of doing that because it doesn't come with necessarily preconceptions when it's delivered in a, a way which isn't wrapped up in the kind of environment that you might say in a concert talk if you just go out there and just sing and play it's a natural human response to listen or to join in or to take part and that brings people together and that's the magic of it it's really about getting people to come together around music in a positive way I think the reason why we keep doing it is that we see that there's a lot of division in our society at the moment not least from the politics um, that is, is surrounding us and developing and changing day by day so a really, really key part of why we do that is to create something positive that counters that division. For us, three key things. Uh, making sure, in the first case, that we spread joy. It's as simple as that. What better piece of music to do that than Beethoven's Ode to Joy? Number two, that, that joy leads to a sense of empathy and an understanding um, between other people, sorry, between people, e even if it's not... Um, even if it's just a sense, if it's just a feeling of I respect you, I want to be part of a conversation and interaction with you. And number three is that that empathy inevitably leads, leads to unity. And, and that, that can happen regardless of people's political outlook. You can come together and be one even if you disagree about things. And I think that that is, we know that instinctively as musicians. Uh, uh, we, we, we live and breathe that every day. But I think to bring that out into the open and to bring that into our society right here, right now is important. So whilst outwardly this protest felt incredibly positive, mm. I was struck by what Simon said to me towards the end of our meeting. He said he'd been feeling depressed of late because of recent developments and it increasingly looks like a people's vote won't happen. Yeah. And I was struck by this feeling of sadness because it feels as though 
Simon Volfish and Simon Hewitt-Jones have become the heirs to a legacy of musicians playing on the Titanic as it sinks around them to spread positivity even in times of absolute desperation. Sam, this week you reviewed Naxos Classics' new disc of Alberto Nepomuncena's music. Am I correct? Indeed, and it's being performed by the Minas Gerais Philharmonic Orchestra and their conductor Fabio Machetti. So he's a Brazilian composer. He is one of a rare beast, a Brazilian composer. Uh, he is of the generation before Via Lobov, who is probably the most famous and recognisable name coming out of Brazil. And uh, he is a romantic composer through and through, and he writes nationalist music. In fact, he's a real nationalist. He's not just a nationalist composer. He was heavily involved in the politics out there. Right, so he's a real diehard Brazilian. He is. He was involved in the throw, overthrow of the monarchy in Brazil and the establishment of the first Brazilian Republic in 1889. I didn't know that. I didn't know it either until the sleeve note came. And I also found out that he had studied in Europe, both in Italy and Germany, so two kind of contrasting schools there, if you think about what's mm. going on in the 19th century. And he ended up marrying a Norwegian, so he's a proper pan-European bloke, uh, was Grieg's housemate. He uh, resolved, after living with Grieg and being inspired by living with him, to go home and incorporate Brazilian themes and folk songs into classical music, much as Grieg was doing um, in Norway. Here's a taster of the first movement of his symphony in G minor. It really is the opening. I wondered if they'd sent me the wrong track. But actually, you sort of stumble into the piece and it's swirling around you. There's a sort of ballroom dance going on and the symphony is in full flow. It's just that you've only just joined it. G minor, man. It's a good key for symphonies. There have been a lot of symphonies written in G minor, You've am got I right? Those, there's two famous Mozart ones. The ones from Amadeus. Ba, 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 ba. Um, Haydn's The Chicken is uh, also in G minor. The Chicken? I didn't le, know he le, had a chicken. Uh, yeah, and Tchaikovsky one, Nielsen one. So maybe it's something about G minor. But I think that this is really amazing music and totally deserves to be held in the same esteem as those more famous works. It re- I, I, I'm totally zealous about this now. It's good. It's not good for something you haven't heard before. It's not good for something by a composer who you're unfamiliar with. It's not. There are no caveats yeah. required. You're really enthusiastic about this I piece. I know, like, and it's quite rare that I have so few reservations. It's really refreshing because normally <laughs> I'm the over-enthusiastic one, which is great. Well, I mean, I would love to see this getting programmed. It would be so fun to go to a performance of this. Let me know if it comes up on the listings anytime soon. But I think what m- has won me over is that it fulfills so many of the criteria that I have for w- what I want in a romantic symphony. Um, Which are? Well, to me, a great romantic symphony is kind of like architecture or something like that. And I don't mean architecture as in like they've composed a lovely great big shape. I mean that you live alongside architecture and you walk past it every day, whether it's rainy, whether it's sunny, whether it's, you know, whether you're feeling down, whether you're feeling busy, whether you're just able to reflect on it. The building will give you something new back depending on what you have brought to it. 
and a really great symphony can do that too Mm. and works of that really high caliber have inscribed in them so many different possibilities and so many different meanings i think that's why they're worth re-recording and re-performing is because each time you can find a different there's a different angle there's a different story to be told each time absolutely and i think that this piece is one worth living with i think it really has that plurality of meaning going on naxos say that it's a brahmsian influence and i was a little bit skeptical about that at the beginning uh, because it doesn't have any of that rhythmic strife that i associate with um brahmsian emotion how how brahms emotes seems to be about where the beat is and mm. uh, all that kind playing of playing with it and yeah, mixing the, it up the struggle between parts to say who's in charge but actually i think it's the ambiguity of the themes it, so there's there's still an emotional ambiguity there's still that emotional struggle it's just expressed in a different way yeah which to me felt more like tchaikovsky I think if you are a fan of Tchaikovsky symphonies, go and check this out because it is uh, an extension of ideas from those and an integration of parts of Brazilian uh, folk music. You've got the marshishi rhythm, the sort of cha 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 is in there, um, as well as the, the folk song bit. My only slight pullback on the music is the fourth movement feels a little bit weak, and that is because the ending just kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, he's not the first 19th century composer to be a bit confused about what to do with the finale. Slightly ran out of ideas, do you think? It, or... it just doesn't quite organically get to a feeling of end. It's of, we've done a symphony, we're doing a symphony, we're doing a symphony, and ooh, bang, finish. Perhaps that matches the beginning in that you stumble into this symphony and therefore you oh. stumble out of it. Oh, Tim, that is bloody good. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Well, maybe that's it, and I just missed it. (laughs) Very good. So this orchestra's only ten years old. Can you tell me about their playing, how they got on? Well, it's an absolutely velvety sound. Uh, And their conductor, Fabio Machetti, who is their their founder and... uh, Is he Brazilian as well? He is. The whole thing was set up as a new positive step for Brazilian arts. And I don't know whether it's their concert hall, whether it's their sound engineers, or whether it's their players... But the the sound is so full. And I wondered if it was my headphones. I've got some new headphones. And then I put it on the same sound system at home. And it just, just comes good. through the speakers. It's full and fat. There's one bass pitch that feels like it resonates for about half an hour. It's mm. just fruity. So I really like the sound, particularly the string sound. And the brass is something that we uh, historically have thought of as a strength of South American music. And they really deliver here in a very classy and weighty kind of way i think machetti picks really good tempi i don't know the piece obviously but it feels like he lands on a really good place particularly in the finale for making it feel driven and virtuosic there's a lot of flute solo where they are right on the edge of what it's possible to play and that's always where you want to be Mm. i think in a finale it's always exciting to be on that tipping point yeah Um, and he, he digs that out really well at the beginning of the month you reviewed florence price's symphonies numbers one and four which came out on naxos as well how does that compare to this? I think that the Nepomuceno is probably the superior disc. The playing is really, really strong on this. And the music I'm just in love with. So I'm always going to pick that. But both of them, I think, represent really good stuff from Naxos. And what they're choosing to put out, they're really broadening what's available to listeners. Uh, and that's a commercial risk for them, mm. I'd have thought. If you look at what else is coming out this month, you've got Rachel Fuller's Animal Requiem, which has got... Paul McCartney on and Alfie Bow, that is the kind of thing that will obviously make money. And Naxos are not putting out discs like that. They're putting out stuff of 19th century Brazilian composers being played by current Brazilian orchestras. And that may not fly off the shelves. But for me, it it shows that they are serving listeners, I think. Mm. 
And, you know, we want that plurality out there. We want all the different things. But naturalists are really holding up their end of the spectrum by putting out stuff that doesn't have all those big names attached. What's coming up this week, Sam? I just don't know, Timothy. Tell me. I know. Wednesday the 13th, the London Sinfonietta and Synergy Vocals are performing at the Birmingham Symphony Hall and then the next night at, at St David's Hall in Cardiff. And they're doing Steve Reich, Camping Music, Runner and Music for 18 Musicians. That's one of my top pieces, Music for 18 Musicians. Really That's going to be great. It's also the tail end of the Ber- Birmingham Early Music Festival, so it's all happening in Birmingham this week. Who knew? Wednesday the 13th is also the anniversary of Wagner's death in 1883. Very good. We'll get to uh, a Wagnerian theme in just a moment. But Thursday the 14th, obviously, wherever you go, there's a Valentine's concert. So uh, if you want to hear romantic, slushy tunes, go out anywhere and you'll find one. On the 12th, back to the 12th, and back to Wagner, Hans von Bühler, who conducted the premieres of Tristan and Meistersinger, he was a very eminent musician during that time. He was actually married to a young woman called Cosima, who was the daughter of Liszt. But she was taken from him by Richard Wagner and uh, they ended up getting married and she had a couple of kids by Wagner and then after that, Bulow divorced her. So if you're not with anyone on the 14th, remember that perhaps not all relationships are worth being in. You know, you could end up like poor hands. Exactly. Friday the 15th, Scottish Ensemble with pianist Gabriella Montero at King's Place and then they're playing the same concert up in Kendall in the Lake District the next night on the 16th. Of the mint cake. Yes, I believe... It is of the mint cake. Of the mint cake, it's where it comes from, yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, so they're playing Messiaen's Quartet to the End of Time, Shostakovich Chamber Symphony, Glass Echorus, and Gabriella Montero's Babel. That'll be the London premiere on the 15th. How exciting. If you go to Oxford and the St Hilda's College Music Room, you will hear our main man Simon Volfish singing Winterreiser. So head over that way. It's also John Adams' birthday, along with Matt Groening, Galileo Galilei and Ernest Shackleton. So uh, another confusing Friday night dinner party. And then finally on Sunday the 17th, Daniel Trifonoff, Simon Rattle and the LSO are playing Ravel's Piano Concerto at the Barbican. Cool, so there's not that much on this week. Perhaps it's one to go and actually just buy that CD. Buy that CD of Nepo Monteno. I'm absolutely addicted to it. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. As ever, you can get in contact with us on all forms of social media with at classical pod and drop us an email much like mikey from mallorca the classical music pod at gmail.com absolutely we really appreciate hearing from people who enjoy the pod especially those that we don't know yeah i mean if you are someone who has never met either of us congratulations you are bringing enormous happiness to both tim and i it was also very cool to have a couple of clips from the 16 this week they were very generous in lending us those thank you to coro records yeah, and um, it makes us feel a bit more legit. So, cheers. Sorry to that truck. Radio